We're going to be in Matthew 27, and we're going to start in verse 62. So look for the big 27 and the small 62, and uh, you'll be in good shape. Uh, A couple of years ago, I read an article by a man named Mitch, and Mitch described his trip to the Holy Land. In particular, he went to Jerusalem, and he went and visited a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a massive structure built on top of the traditional locations of the crucifixion of Jesus and the tomb of Jesus. You walk into this massive church and to your right's a set of stairs that you would walk up and, and here's this, this hill where Jesus was crucified. You walk down another set of stairs and you go past a giant slab of rock believed to be the place where Jesus' body was prepared for burial. And then you walk past that rock into another room and there's a small building within the grand building and that small building is built over the remains of the tomb of Jesus. So Mitch is describing his otherworldly experience in this place. And he said, all of a sudden, there was a disturbance near the entrance to the church. And he turned and looked, and he could not believe what he was seeing. Into the church walked Mick Jagger. Lead singer of the Rolling Stones, rock royalty, nay, rock demigod, Mick Jagger, walks into the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And uh, he has with him a tour guide, and he has with him four bodyguards, and the bodyguard said, no pictures. And then every phone goes click, and, and they pull out their phones, and they're taking video and taking photos. This is Mick Jagger in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Unbelievable. And to Mick's credit, he didn't draw attention to himself. He didn't announce himself in any grand way. He's just there for a tour like everyone else. Uh, and so it wasn't really his fault, but uh, the, the more he's in the church, the more the crowd swells and follows where he goes, and people are just enamored. Look, it's Mick Jagger. Is, is that his real hair? And he's so short, and he's so skinny, and he's so old. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to say. He's so old. He's, he's really old. Mick Jagger's so old, his last name should be Asaurus. Mickasaurus. Thank you. That's my A game. That's the best I've got for you today. Thank you so much. Mitch, who's writing the article, said, it was amazing how quickly people turned from the empty tomb and turned to Mick Jagger. As if they forgot where they were standing and what this represented. One of the most sacred spots in all of Christendom. And here this aged, not aging, aged celebrity steps in and through no fault of his own, all attention is sucked to that man. It seems to me it would be such a tragedy to go visit the tomb of Christ and to walk away in your headline be, I saw Mick Jagger! Now that'd be a cool story. I would tell that story. Uh, But those who would turn from the tomb and be enamored by celebrity likely do so because they don't understand the significance of the resurrection or the one who no longer dwells in that tomb. 
I think if we see Jesus clearly, if we understand who he is, what he's really about, then all other celebrities, all other uh, attractors would fade away. Jesus would capture our attention in full and with good reason. There's no one that compares. No one that comes close. Pick the celebrity you want, the band leader you want. No one comes close to the importance of Jesus Christ. It might be that you find yourself this morning with a low opinion of Jesus, and that could be for any number of reasons. It could be because you've been hurt by what you've seen happen in a church. Or sometimes Christians are less than great representatives of the Holy One. It could be for you, uh, logic has brought you to this place, you've made conclusions based on philosophical arguments and things you've studied, and, and that's all fair. But my belief is this, if we see Jesus for who he is, we'll understand clearly our need for him. So my job this morning is not to argue for the validity of the resurrection. You're sitting in a church this morning that believes in the physical, actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. He physically rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb. We believe Jesus really lived. We believe he really died. We believe he was buried in a tomb three days later up and walked out of that tomb. We believe the eyewitness reports. We believe the report of Scripture. We believe the 2,000-year-old testimony of the church that the resurrection is not myth. It is not fable. It is the truth. It's what actually historically happened. So I take the resurrection this morning as properly basic. This is our starting point. I'm not arguing if Jesus rose from the dead. I'm talking from the perspective of since Jesus rose from the dead. And since Jesus rose from the dead, it tells us some things about his identity, about his person. If Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead... There's much for us to learn about him, and the tomb talks to us. It tells us about the person of Jesus. So my goal today is to give you what I believe to be life-changing clarity on the person of Jesus. Since he lived, died, rose again, what does that mean for him? What does that mean for us? So I want to show you from the passage we're going to study today three implications of the resurrection on the person of Jesus. Or in other words, three things the resurrection teaches us about Jesus' identity. So we're going to read here in just a second, starting in verse 62, and here's the story so far. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you've walked with us as we've gone with Jesus all the way to the cross. Jesus was nailed to that cross, hung there for hours, and then Matthew tells us he gave up his spirit. Jesus died. Jesus' body is taken down from the cross by a secret disciple of his, a man named Joseph from a town called Arimathea. They wrap the body and they put it in Joseph's very own tomb, roll a large stone over the entrance to the tomb, and that's where our story picks up in verse 62. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. 
Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to share with you from our passage three things the resurrection tells us about the identity, the person of Jesus. The first thing the resurrection of Jesus tells us about him is this. Jesus has spoken truth. You're taking notes. Number one, Jesus has spoken truth, verses 62 to 64, and 5 through 6 spell this out for us. Now, on the front end of our scene, we meet this group called the Pharisees. And if you haven't been with us these past few weeks, you might not know that the Pharisees are a sect of Jews, and they are some of Jesus' main antagonists in this story. In fact, they're the ones that concocted the false charges against Jesus. They're the ones who drugged Jesus in front of Roman authorities. And they're the ones who ultimately got Jesus killed. Uh, So the Pharisees in this story, they remember something Jesus said, and they go back to the Roman authorities after Jesus is already dead to warn them of a coming possible insurrection. Look at what they say in verse 63. The Pharisees go to Pilate, the governor over the region, and they say, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. Did you pick up on the name they called Jesus? What do they call him? They call him the deceiver. And why do they think he's a deceiver? He's a deceiver because he said, After three days I will rise again. And all thinking, educated people know that dead people do not rise. Dead is dead. Not mostly dead. Dead is dead, and that's the end of the story. So they remember exactly what Jesus said. Three days. It's one thing to say, I'll rise again. It's another thing entirely to put a time stamp on it. I will rise again on the third day. How brazen is that? And they know it's impossible, so they call him the deceiver. To be fair to the Pharisees, their premise is correct. If Jesus does not walk out of that tomb on the third day, he is a deceiver. Now what happens in our culture so many times is we'll say this, we'll say, you know, I struggle with the resurrection of Jesus. I don't believe all the fantastical things said about him, but I do like some of his teachings. 
loving your neighbor, caring for the poor. I, I can be down with that. It's all this other stuff that I struggle with. So I'm, I'm going to push this away, and I'm going to hold on to these other teachings. But, but here's the problem. There's no place else in our lives where we allow deceiving people to speak positive comments into our everyday lives. We don't do it. The Pharisees found no redeeming value in Jesus the deceiver. And if Jesus is a deceiver, we shouldn't find value in him either. I mean, think about it. If, if Bed Bath & Beyond sold a set of framed quotes, positive quotes, from great scoundrels in history, you would not buy them. Don't sweat the small stuff. Mussolini. You're not buying that. <laughs> right? There's a silver lining behind every cloud. Muammar Gaddafi. That's not going in your living room. Because we take the whole body of work of scoundrels, deceivers, and liars, and we cast it out. We don't say, oh, he did bad things, but he had some good ideas. We don't do that. We don't do that with these bad guys. We shouldn't do it with a deceiver like Jesus if Jesus is indeed a deceiver. If Jesus has lied, then we should get ourselves on the Pharisee side of things. Be done with this whole charade. So the Pharisees ask to set a guard in front of the tomb. Pilate, the Roman authority, says, go for it. They set the guard, seal the tomb. But that doesn't stop Jesus, right? There's an earthquake. The stone is rolled away. Jesus is out of there. Now, Matthew tells us just as soon as this happens, these women who have been longtime followers of Jesus, they show up on the scene and they have a conversation with the angel. Look at what the angel says to the women in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. The Pharisees said, the deceiver said he will rise on the third day. The angel says, he is not here. He has risen just as he said. Which is he, deceiver or truth teller? He can't be a little of both. There's no gray area here. He is one or the other. And the fact that Jesus got up and walked out of that tomb tells us that he has spoken the truth and all truth belongs to him. He's not one of many truth tellers. He himself has all truth. And everything he has said about himself and about salvation is right and true. Let, let me share with you some things that Jesus said. Just a few lines, just from the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus spoke the truth. In John chapter 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus spoke the truth. In John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus speaks the truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus speaks the truth. Everything he said about himself is true. Everything he said about salvation is true. Every boundary he gave for our living is the right boundary. Jesus walked out of the tomb. He spoke the truth, and all truth is his. There's a second thing the empty tomb teaches us about the person of Jesus. Not only that he is all truth, he spoke truth. Second, Jesus has the power to save. Jesus has the power to save, verses 65 and 66. Well, actually, 65 through verse 3 spell this out for us. So back to the beginning of the scene, the religious leaders, these Pharisees, have come before the Roman governor of the region, Pilate, and they've asked to place a guard in front of the tomb to make sure no one steals the dead body. In verse 65, Pilate makes one of the most unintentionally funniest comments, I think, in all of the New Testament. Look at what he says. Pilate says, Take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. (laughs) It's not going to work. So the religious leaders do just this. They, They take some guards. They post them in front of the tomb. We're told that they sealed the tomb. What that likely means is they poured some wax where the stone met the face of the tomb and and that way you've got a seal on it and it would serve as evidence as to whether or not the tomb had been tampered with. And so now the tomb is secure. Nobody's going in. Nobody's coming out. But suddenly there's an earthquake and an angel of the Lord appears. And look at how Matthew describes the angel's appearance in verse 3. Look at what he says. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Have you ever seen someone who looked like lightning? Me neither. I don't know what that means. But it means this visitor is otherworldly. This is not some disciple running around like a pretend angel with a halo made out of pipe cleaners trying to pull some stunt. This is the holy visitor, the angel of the Lord, who has come on the scene. And then Matthew tells us this. The angel engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the guards. He took out the first two easily, and the next ones were a little craftier. He had to summon all of his skills to take them out. And he had to call on secret angel power in order to get past these guards. Finally, he put them down. And then with what little strength the angel had left, he summoned all the power of heaven and earth. And he was able just a little bit to roll the stone so Jesus could just squeak by out of the crack. Is that how the story goes? No. The angel of the Lord descended to the stone rolled the stone, sat on the stone. It's an incredible display of divine power. Maybe if there had been more guards in front of the tomb, that would have made a difference, you think? Maybe the authorities just underestimated how many guards it would take to take down the heavenly messenger. Maybe, maybe more guards would have 
made a difference? I don't think so. Maybe they needed a bigger stone, a bigger rock in front of the tomb. They needed, they needed Moar, the mother of all rocks. Just put it right there. No one's moving that thing. Maybe that would have kept Jesus in the tomb. Maybe Sherman tanks and some cruise missiles and a cadre of ninjas. Maybe that would have done the trick and kept Jesus in there. Look, it doesn't matter what you put in front of that tomb. It was never going to be a fair fight. Jesus is coming out of that tomb no matter what, and no guards and no powers of hell will hold him back. If Jesus stays in the tomb, if Jesus lays there and continues to decay, then it's clear that he has no power. But if he walks out of that tomb, all power belongs to him, the one who is victorious over death. When you and I talk about power, we talk about it with different categories. We might think about muscle. We might talk about politics. We might talk about military power. These are categories of power that we see on a regular basis and and that makes sense to us. But to compare the power of Jesus to our own categories is utterly ridiculous. Because we have seen and we continue to see what mankind does with power, and it is seldom noble. So to try and compare Jesus to our little categories is just completely silly. The power of Jesus is infinitely infinitely greater than man or missile. There's no discussion to be had on this matter. And the power of Jesus is not just greater than any power we can concoct. His power is of a different category altogether. Do you want to know how powerful Jesus is? This is how powerful he is. He can forgive your sin. He has this kind of power. He can take the spiritually dead and bring them to life. He has this kind of power He can take the train wreck life, the person who's been failure after failure, mess up after mess up, and bring to that one the value that he sees in them. New life, a new start, a new name. Here's the kind of power that Jesus has. If you say yes to him today in faith, he will hold you now and forever. He will forgive you of sins past and sins to come, and he will usher you into eternity one day. And here's the kind of power Jesus has. One day, a trumpet will sound and the sky will split open and Jesus will return for his bride, the church. And then we will see the full capability of his power when he puts down his enemy once and for all and establishes his kingdom to reign forevermore. That's the kind of power Jesus has. And the empty tomb vindicates this. Jesus has all power. He is the sovereign, omnipotent one, and he uses all of that power for your salvation. Dies on the cross in your place, goes to the grave, walks out of that tomb, and uses all of his power to work salvation for us. The tomb is telling us Jesus is all truth. Jesus is all power. One more picture of Jesus from the tomb. The third thing we learn is that Jesus has good news. So simple, but it's profound. Jesus has good news. Verses 4 through 10 lay this out for us. After the resurrection of Jesus, 
in the passage that we've read this morning, the word afraid shows up four different times. Did you pick up on that as we read? There's a lot of fear in the story. In verse 4, the soldiers are afraid at the presence of the angel of the Lord. And uh, I love the way they're described in verse 4. They were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. It's quite an ironic scene. These living guards guarding a dead man, when the dead man becomes alive, the live men become like dead men. And we don't get an update on what happens to those guards later on. We just know they lay in the dirt, twitching, fearful, comatose, I don't know, playing possum. I don't know if there's possums in the Middle East in the first century, but they're like dead men in the dirt. They just hang out there for a while, terrified. The next scene in verse 5, the women see the angel and they're afraid. The angel tells the women, do not be afraid. In verse 8, the women leave the tomb and we're told they were afraid yet filled with joy. And in the fourth and last time, verse 10, Jesus appears to these women and Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. Why are they afraid? Soldiers and the women, why are they afraid? Well, how would you respond to a holy visitation? Imagine tonight you're sitting in your living room and all of a sudden you are aware Jesus is there. Physically in the room with you, there's Jesus. You don't know how you know it's Jesus. You just know that is Jesus. How do you respond? Oh, Jesus, let me, let me pause this real quick. I, I was not expecting you. This is a huge surprise. Glad to see you. Uh, can I get you something to drink? Maybe some seltzer water? And then Jesus would say, I don't drink that garbage. Seltzer water is disgusting. I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm setting people free today. Maybe Jesus drinks it. I don't know. You would not be nonchalant if you were to come face to face with the blazing glory of God. Now, you may have concocted a scene in your head where it's no big whoop, whoop and, and you might just think, well, I'll stand before God and I'll have more good than bad and that'll be okay. But when you stand before God, you will recognize you have nothing good and you have all bad. And the judgment against you is the right judgment. It is guilty in your sin. Every person in Scripture that stands before the holiness of God responds in the fear of judgment, a right judgment against their sin. That's why they're afraid. Now, the women in the story receive comfort twice. The angel tells them, do not be afraid. Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. The guards receive no such comfort. So why should the women not be afraid? Because the resurrection of Jesus is not for their doom, it is for their salvation. It is good news for these women, these followers of Jesus, that he has walked out of the tomb, they're going to be saved from their sin. And it's not just good news for these women, it's good news also for the disciples. We haven't talked about them in several weeks. They sort of vaporized off the scene a while back. But Jesus, in verse 10, look at what he says to the women. He says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It's interesting to me that Jesus calls them his brothers. He could have chosen other names. Cowards, deniers, arrogant punks. There's any number of derogatory names he could have used, but what does he call them? Brothers. His resurrection is good news for them. 
is the resurrection of Jesus good news for you? It should be. It should be good news that your salvation does not depend at all on your good versus bad. Your salvation is based on your trust in Jesus who died and rose again. It's good news that those who once were rebels can be called brothers. It's good news that we don't have to walk in fear, but we can overflow with joy. There's a common narrative in our culture that tries to explain the great religions of the world in this way. It says this, that we're all on different roads up the same mountain. At the top of the mountain, here's this divine being, whatever you call God. And we're all just taking different roads to get there. You're here this morning because you're on that Christian road up the mountain, and one day you'll get there and find this universal God. And Muslims are walking up the path of Islam, and Hindus have a path, and Buddhists have a path, Jews have a path. Agnostics don't know if they're on the right path, but they're on a path. And atheists are on a path, but say there's nothing to see once you get to the top. But everyone's on a path on their way up the mountain. Here's the problem with the metaphor. Christianity does not fit. Christianity is not the story about how man ascends any mountain to get to God. Christianity is the story about the God who wiped out the mountain with all of its requirements and descended into the depths to rescue us by his death and his resurrection and to give us new life when we trust in him. That's good news. It's a good news that is utterly unique to the Christian scriptures and the Christian story. Our view of the world is not how we ascend to the heavens. Our view is he has come to us in the person of Jesus and laid down his life, died my death, the one I deserve, so that I could live his life. That's good news for these women, for these disciples, for you this morning. So the empty tomb has a lot to say about the person of Jesus. It's telling us these three things. One, he is all truth. Two, he is all power. Three, he is the good news. And if you add up these three conclusions, along with everything else we know about Jesus, we come to one inescapable conclusion, and that is this. Jesus is God. The God of creation. The God of salvation. Jesus is not the man chosen by God. He's not the man who became God. He's not more than a man and less than a God. He is very God of God himself. And all of salvation runs through him. The question is, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the testimony of Scripture, with an empty tomb? You can go to Jerusalem today and visit that site, and you can walk in the tiny little room, and you know what you will see? A slab of empty stone. There's nobody in it. What are you going to do with this? I think this story calls us to a response, not just a mental response where we would intellectually assent to these things. It calls us to a heart response. When we begin to acknowledge how fruitless our attempts to make ourselves right with God truly are, and instead we trust in what He has done on our behalf. Because of my sin, because of our sin, we deserve eternal punishment. But God loves you this much. He came to us in the person of Jesus. And in his life, we saw the kingdom of God on display. 
And he died the death that your sin deserves. And when you come to him in faith, he doesn't just wipe your slate clean. You know what I would do with a clean slate? I'm going to dirty that sucker up quick. And so would you. He doesn't give you a clean slate. He gives you a righteous slate. There is a huge difference. He doesn't die so that you can have the possibility of being saved. He dies to save full stop. Dies, raises from the dead. Your faith is in him. He takes your sin. You take his righteousness in eternity and glory. Forgiveness and mercy. Grace belongs to you now and forevermore. It could be that you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you've been on this spiritual journey for some time. And this could be the day where all of that comes to an apex. And finally, you're ready to put aside all of your own efforts, all of your religion and irreligion, and instead to just trust completely in what Christ has done for you. This is the day. Easter Sunday could be the day you receive new life by trusting in Jesus. At the end of our service this morning, I'm going to be hanging around over here. A prayer team will be over here. And we would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian and to walk with you as you give your life to Jesus Christ. Before you leave this building today, that can happen. Or you may have come with a Christian. You may come with someone that you know and trust, someone who walks with Jesus. You could have that discussion with them and have it today. It could be you're with us this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're not ready to say yes to him. I acknowledge that we're all in different places on our journey to faith. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Give Jesus a fair hearing. Uh, Earlier in our service, you heard Pastor Dave talk about this class called Christianity Explored. Seven Wednesdays, starting this Wednesday, come give a at maximum two hours we will feed you good food so you just come straight from work to here and you get a safe honest place to ask questions to consider the claims of the Bible and to pursue for yourself uh, what it is that that being a Christian really means this can help you get to the core of who Jesus is away from negative perceptions or negative expressions in culture you owe it to yourself to study the claims of Christ I would encourage you to do that. And when you leave this morning, that table is going to be on your left in that corner. You can sign up. You can ask some questions or just show up Wednesday night. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this story, this is the story. And it reassures us of what we've already sung today. Death does not have the final answer. Sin does not have the last say in these things. Our walk with Christ is marked by life, everlasting life, new life. And Resurrection Sunday is the perfect day for us to re-engage our hearts and souls with Christ in any way we need to. So you've heard this morning the beautiful truth about Jesus. His resurrection shines a light on his identity and then it shines a light on us as well and our need for Jesus. The story holds out a promise to you, an invitation. If you will, like the women in the story, come to Jesus, then like the women in the story, you're going to walk away full of joy. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for your word to us this morning. 
Thank you for the work that has been done for our salvation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly, people like us. Thank you that salvation is free, that salvation is all of grace and not any of my works. Thank you that salvation depends on what Christ did in his death and resurrection. And what he did there is finished and perfect and eternal. Lord, I pray that you would give courage to my friends in here this morning who are on their path to faith. Give them courage to say yes to you. Or give them courage to investigate the things that your word says. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that you would lift us, that we would walk in the power of the resurrection. God, that we would glorify your name as we show the difference a living, risen Savior makes to those around us. We praise you for Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, for a living Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.